3, 4. From WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. This week we're joined by Nashville singer-songwriter Margot Price. Her brand of country music is rooted in tradition, but she's not caught up in the current hype surrounding outlaw country. I don't know. I think that there's a lot of people in the mainstream that are being turned on their heads right now and really grasping for authenticity. But... I, that being said, I think it's only a matter of time before the Americana outlaw bubble bursts. We'll also revisit our conversation with the late Anthony Bourdain. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show we'll have an interview and a live performance with Margot Price. But first, we have to pay tribute to the late Anthony Bourdain. We are replaying a conversation we aired with Anthony Bourdain in 2008. Eight books total, four different hit television shows, an incredible man dead at the age of 61 on June 8th in France by his own hand. You know, why did we have this chef, this raconteur, this television host on our show at the risk of getting all sappy? (laughs) You and me believe that music remains the greatest force in the world to unite people. Unite people who may have strong differences, people we don't know, people we're afraid of. Bourdain felt that way about food. I am a food fan as well as a music fan. I know so are you. And Bourdain was a music fan as well as a food fan. The way he talked passionately about food is the way we try to talk about music, and we talked about music with him. We began our conversation by asking Anthony Bourdain to explain the similarities between the rock and roll lifestyle and that of a chef. There's a lot of overlap, I think, in, in you know, the talent pool. You know, the, the kitchen has always been sort of a refuge for misfits, uh, marginal characters who kind of instinctively understand that the nine to five world is not for them. I think what's been missed as well is that our hours coincide. I mean, certainly when Mm -hmm. I came up in the business in the mid, early and mid 70s, you know, musicians like to hang out in bars. We have a bar in our restaurant. You know, musicians (laughs) get off work two in the morning, we get off two in the morning. So it wasn't a, it wasn't really a a stretch. You know, musicians like free food, we like, you know, to get into concerts for free. (laughs) So there was a lot of overlap there. What about that interest in music? I mean, what came first for you? You obviously were a very accomplished uh, chef early on. But that scene back mm-hmm. then, you were intimately involved and it seemed like you were going beyond the surface level music. So obviously you'd been into music for a while as well. Well, my father worked for Columbia Records uh, when I was a kid. And, you know, so I was on sample service early on. You know, my dad would come home, though he worked in the, the masterwork, Columbia Masterwork Division, classical music division. He'd come home, you know, when I was a little kid with, you know, here, Tony, this is, you know, Sergeant Pepper's. Everybody at the office in the A&R department says, you know, this is the greatest record ever. You should listen to it, you know. I, I had to remind him of this years later as, don't blame me for the drugs, Dad. You gave me that <laughs> album, you know. <laughs> so that was, you know, I grew up in a musical family where music was important and it was something we noticed and where I tended to be aware of the best albums, the best records of the time, as, you know, often before they were released. Mm-hmm. So after getting uh, off work in the kitchen, mm-hmm. you'd be hanging in the early 70s with 
the Ramones, with you know the members of the New York punk scene, the Dead Boys. You see, the, I'd see the Dead Boys around. I, I mean, I was a big Richard Hell and the Voidoids fan. Mm-hmm. You know, I got all, I got the vapors when Richard Vo- Richard Hell would come in, uh, you know, for a glass of bourbon and his scrambled eggs in the morning. You know, that was a big deal to me. And what was special about that, I guess, is that no one else knew who they were. I mean, the punk Mm -hmm. thing was, this was music you never heard on the radio and was not referred to in any magazine and was basically invisible and inaudible to everyone for everywhere for the for the most part for quite some time so it was special you know you know you mentioned the bourbon and the eggs in the morning what, what would these guys eat i mean what you know were they as interested in food as you were in music i think they were they were just starving i mean yeah. they didn't eat enough uh, you know a lot of that money went to dope food was sort of a secondary consideration i mean if you look at how a lot of those guys were living it was pretty close to the margins and of course, they're not making any money. You know, maybe their girlfriends are making money. Uh, you know, stripping or dancing or whatever, uh, which was a popular way to make a living at the time. So would you slide them a meal occasionally? Or yeah, I, like that? I, I mean, I remember we. I was a big Johnny Thunders fan, uh, and we managed to network a free meal for him. You know, we had him come in and eat at the restaurant. He came in all dressed up, you know, little tie, little little tuxedo jacket, <laughs> and terrified. That's the thing that struck me. He was really intimidated. I, he, it, like he'd never eaten in a fine dining situation before. And I remember when it, when he was offered, like, would you like, you know, red or white? You know, he he just had them both mixed in his glass, <laughs> and you know, it was like a little kid. And it was it was very you know sweet. Yeah, that's cool. You make the point philosophically that uh, that music can affect what's going on in your kitchen. You have played punk rock at different times, but now there are different soundtracks. Can you talk a little bit about about how the the stuff that none of us hear or see because we know we're sitting out mm-hmm. at the table, right? What's going on in the kitchens uh, where you have worked and like right. to work, and what's the soundtrack? Well, a lot of chefs now it's you know total silence during the service period. You know, there, there's going to be no music at all. But, you know, a mid-range joint like mine, uh, chances are, you know, when I was working in the kitchen every day, during prep, I, I liked soundtrack to Superfly, Curtis Mayfield, early sort of pre, <laughs> pre-disco funk, maybe a little George Clinton, you know, that kind of sound. Establishing um, a groove. Establishing a groove. During the service period, you know, you're kind of fighting for, for music, for DJ position, or at least you're trying to accommodate a lot of different tastes. You know, maybe a little punk, you know, Dead Boys early on. But then I got to kind of swap for some, you know, Mexican thrash metal or Mexican pop songs mm-hmm. and stuff like that with the majority of my kitchen are, of course, Mexican. You know, when I'm getting out of the kitchen, then then you get into, you know, more more adrenaline-based stuff, I guess. You know, then it's uh, definitely Ramones all the way. But you got to get through the end of the night. Or, you know, classic stuff. Give, give you that one more shot of adrenaline to propel you out into the night. <laughs> um, <laughs> the day's just beginning. But but do you think that the, what the cooks are listening to can be tasted in the end result? I mean, that's a philosophical heavy I know, question. I know some chefs who definitely, the, the more creative end, who get flavors from from sound you know they get they they actually get inspired creatively by listening to to music i'm not 
like that. I, mm. I was always, first of all, I wasn't that creative a chef. I was more of a workhorse journeyman guy. But most chefs, I think, use music for release. You know, afterwards, it could kind of, you're looking for a, a pleasurable oblivion or to take you out and away from, from the kind of coal mine situation you've been in. Mm. So I don't know what that's like. You know, I, I'm not inspired to cook by music. I like to cook to music. If I'm alone in my kitchen, you know, just cooking for a few friends, that's different. Then I'm, that's a whole different kind of group. I could be going, you know, old anywhere from Dean Martin. Mm. You know, I like old, like uh, cheesy British uh, gangster film soundtracks. Like, mm-hmm. get, I mean, very into the Get Carter soundtrack now in a big way. Well, that's an interesting area because I, I wanted to ask you this. And I think it's one of the key questions in my life. Like, what do you play when you have people over for dinner? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, what complements this meal? And so you have six guests over and you're cooking dinner for them. What do you put on? Does it depend on what you're serving? Does it depend yeah. on who they are? Definitely, I think... Um Serge Gainsbourg is good for French, you know, maybe Serge Gainsbourg with uh, with uh, Brigitte Bardot, that yeah, wonderful single. You know, something that's evocative of France, if, if that's what you're doing with the food. And Italy, you know, definitely you're falling into that kind of... You know, Connie Francis, you know, yeah. <laughs> you're talking uh, Dean Martin. So you're going to go old school um, or you're going to stick with I'm like a old pizza joint kind of soundtrack? I don't want to hear Portishead. And, you know, I don't want uh. dining lounge music <laughs> in the background. You know, that's so ubiquitous. Yeah. I, I'm not serving chocolate martinis. Why should I play chocolate martini music, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's not sort of an ambient thing. It's like you don't want this sort of sifting in the background where people can sort of talk over it. You see, I've always gone that direction. Because yeah. Eric Satie said that ambient music is music that mingles with the knives and forks at dinner. Mm-hmm. So I can't play Satie. That's too whipped. But I, but I always, I, I opt out with Eno. Because, you, know, yeah. you know, my in-laws won't object to Eno. Somebody hipper knows that it's Eno. You know, I'll put on the, you know, for the hipper crowd, I'll put on McCoy Tyner. For, mm-hmm. like, the little less hip crowd, George Winston. You know, kind of solo piano. Mm-hmm. You don't want anything too interfering with, you know, you don't want anybody to, you know, harsh their mellow, whatever it is. So, while so eating, metal know? machine music would be out, Yeah, right? I mean, you know. You know <laughs> it's probably music, music that could, could interfere with digestion, <laughs> yeah, that, physically. And friendships. And yeah, that's what right. I'm asking. And the same thing for setting the mood in a restaurant. I'd love to hear the amazing soundtrack that's going on while you're cooking in the back. But what about the folks out front eating? What do you, what do you set for them musically? Inno- I mean, innocuous. You know, it's it's if in my restaurant, it's like Edith Piaf and you know French chanteurs and you know stuff like that. I do like you know kind of early early '60s uh, French uh, pop sometimes, but really innocuous. So you don't want to you don't want to distract from the meal. I mean, that's true at home as well. You don't mm-hmm. want people to stop the conversation dead to admire what a you know forward thinking genius you were when you bought the album. <laughs> you know, that's just it's like people who used to. You know, stand up and show you that they could recite every line from a fire sign theater or a Frank Zappa album. You know, right. there's something a little creepy about that. It's too you know? much. It's yeah, too it's much. too much. You're not a purist. That's what I, I like about your sensibilities. Like you're just as comfortable eating a bad hot dog in a cool bar uh, on on the Lower East Side as you are in a four star French restaurant. Often more so. I and think. and I was gonna say, is that you know, I mean, you you've traveled in these worlds where you, you're around a lot of chefs. I mean. 
do most chefs share that, share that sort of sensibility where they can appreciate food at those kind of levels, or are there are they snobs? I, I think most chefs after work want a good hot dog or something good, local, authentic, and totally without pretense. And of course, just like there are musicians, musicians, you know, people that that you know after a musician performs, they want to go see. There are chefs, chefs who 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 tend to simplify things and you know cook pretty f- straightforward stuff. Mm-hmm. I got to ask you about okay. Two artists that you have said you will never countenance anywhere, anytime, <laughs> in any restaurant <laughs> Not that you in ever my step foot in. No Billy Joel, no Grateful Dead. Yeah. I am the entertainer, and I know just where I stand. Another serenader, and another long-haired band. Uh, uh, well, Billy Joel is actually, you know, I've said no no Billy Joel is allowed in my kitchen. Uh, you know, under you're fired <laughs> if you've seen Visibly Enjoying uh, Billy Joel. <laughs> He has slipped into my kitchen on numerous occasions and sent me pictures of himself oh with God. signs saying, I guess you do let Billy Joel in your kitchen. I've had dinner with him. And as I said to him, I just hate your music, man. I believe you're absolutely, I believe you're really talented. I, I mean, I, I, it's, it, clearly you are. I just really hate that melodic kind of stuff. And he hasn't taken a swing at you? No, no, he was very cool. He, he's we've a good eater. Because we've gotten the nasty phone calls really? from Joel when we've dared to review him. He's a competitive he, guy. He was a very, very good guy with a good sense of humor to me. Uh, you know, uh, yeah. I've been this making Billy Joel jokes for a long this time. Is a I just, to you know, so he's allowed in my kitchen anytime, just not, not yeah. his music. Yeah. Uh, the Grateful <laughs> Dead. I just, I just don't, you know, hippies. You know, anyone who likes the Grateful Dead, I have concerns about their arrival time and work ethic. You know, <laughs> I to start with. And, I, and I'm just, I had a bitter experiences in the 60s and, and, and 70s. You know, it all sort of died and was over by the time. I, it was everything that I hated when the Ramones arrived and saved me. You know, endless pedal steel solos and noodling away on guitars. And, you know, the words, oh, the show was great. It went on for seven hours. That that never <laughs> sounded good to me. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, don't like it. Well, I think you have an opposition to, to the extended meal, too. It seemed like there's a little bit of opposition on your part. Like, why does this have to be a four-hour Extravaganza where you get the escort to the men's room when you want to go there. It's yeah, like, I would be, uh, you know, a perfect world. I would be eating the world stuff from great chefs, the, the best ingredients. I'd be eating with my hands and I would not have to wear shoes. You know? <laughs> street food, big yeah. fan of street food. Right, right. What about this notion, Tony, that chefs are the new rock stars? Now, you you are infamous as we are. You know, we're critics. We, we put our, ourselves on the line. You know, when we, when we, you just went off on the Grateful Dead, you know, but you don't do that for a living. You're just a guy mm. who has an opinion on the Grateful Dead. We can say in the paper, and we're going to get 300 emails the next mm. day. But, but you take on some of the other names, some people who do TV shows but apparently never cook, you know, and you give props to guys who, who may be stars now, but you know, worked in the kitchen the hard way. You know, it was fun making fun of Emeril for a while. But, you know, uh, that's a hardworking guy who came up, you know, yeah. the hard way and deserves some success. With, you know, and, and, and at least as a professional, uh, which is probably why they're giving him the chop over at uh, Food Network. Um, we're, you know, we're going through a transitional phase here where it's really not about the food. It's not about the cooking. It's about the personalities. And I guess in a lot of the same way that, that MTV made a transition to – you know, I mean, how much music is on MTV anymore? None. Anymore. No, you know, yeah. None. So how much food is actually going to be on Food Network? I, I, I think, you know, about the same. <laughs> yeah. do, do you find that there's a correlation between great music towns, cities around the world, and great food? I mean, can a town have amazing restaurants and great food with lousy music or vice versa? You know, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I'm thinking about great music towns. I think, you know, people who like music tend to be sensualists. People who like food tend to be sensualists. You're, you're open to music. You're open to food. And, and I think those, those attitudes tend to coincide more often than not. 
Well, our favorite uh, rock star chef, by, by all means, is Tony Bourdain. Thank you very much, Tony. My pleasure. That was our conversation with the late Anthony Bourdain, dead at age 61. Please call and leave your memories of Bourdain at 888-859-1800. Coming up, a conversation and performance from Margot Price in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and uh, this week we're talking with Nashville singer-songwriter Margot Price, who, by the way, was a, uh, a guest on Anthony Bourdain's show, Parts Unknown. When he went to Nashville, he prominently uh, featured Margot. But that's not all she's known for. She is uh, part of this generation of uh, Nashville songwriters, up-and-comers, who are rooted in, in sort of a hardcore side of the country scene uh, with really strong songwriting chops, really reinventing what it means to be a Nashville country artist. Uh, her first album came out a couple years ago, Midwest Farmer's Daughter. It was recorded at Sun Studios in Memphis and released in 2016. Her latest, All American Made, released in 2017, signed to Jack White's Third Man Records out of Nashville. And uh, though she's not really a, uh, a country pop chanteuse, as it were, her records are both charting uh, on the country charts. It was a real sign of, of new life uh, in Nashville. She was raised in a small town in Illinois, Alito. She is, uh, as, as advertised, a Midwest farmer's daughter, uh, as her debut album was titled. Uh, at the age of 20, she took off her college, but she shared with us that she wasn't there too long. I came to Nashville uh, to visit my cousin on spring break, and I dropped out and... And never looked back. <laughs> Your parents must have been proud. They were so proud. They were so proud. No, they, uh, they put everything on the, my dad's flatbed trailer and um, moved me down there. And we looked like the Beverly Hillbillies <laughs> coming in town with a, just a big pile of junk all strapped in. And they were supportive. I mean, you know, I think that they wanted me to get my degree. And um, very shortly after I moved there, I met my husband, Jeremy, at a, um, a Belmont college party where neither of us were going to school. And uh, we were just hanging out and partying with folks that were going to school there. And, um, yeah, we started writing together. And uh, I like to say we're a 13-year overnight success. <laughs> it's true, because there were three in, three indie albums, right? And an EP before. Oh, yeah, there were many, many. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you're listening to Sound Opinions. We're here at the Goose Island Barrel House. Uh, you guys want to play a song for us? Sure, yeah. What are we going to hear, Margot? called Heart of America. My sweet mother gets up so early in the morning. She turns on the stove and she makes a pot of coffee. My daddy filled his tractor up with diesel to plant the corn. That's how it was on the day that I was born Well, the days they went by And the bins filled up with grain My mother's brother died on a motorcycle in the rain The town, it got too big for his bridges And the government, it came And now it will never be the same 
No one moves away with no money, they just do what they can. To live in the heart of America, getting by on their own two hands. You can pray to anybody's Jesus and be a hardworking man. But at the end of the day, if the rain, it don't rain, we just do what we can. Heart of America by Margot Price. She's here at the Goose Island Barrel House on Sound Opinions with Jeremy Ivey and Luke Schneider. What a wonderful, beautiful song. Thank you. So from your second album that's gotten super widespread attention, all the, not to slight all the indie recordings before, um, All American Made. Um, that means many things on different songs throughout the album, right? It seems like one of the things you're doing is really talking about uh, this moment in America and, and the good things about democracy and how perhaps we're slipping away from them. And these problems, they're all American made. <laughs> Am I paraphrasing correctly, Margo? I'd say so. Yeah, but you know, when we first um, were thinking about the second album, um, there, it was kind of the idea to encompass all different types of American music, um, which I think is one of the most beautiful things about America is that all the different genres that, you know, we've it's become such a melting pot. There's so yeah. many, so many different um, styles of roots music to choose from, and and we didn't want to do um, a traditional country record again. I mean, obviously there's many traditional <laughs> moments on there, but um, we wanted to feel free to incorporate, you know, blues and and folk and um, you know, soul and all and all the things that um, that have kind of come to fruition. If we wanted to to be psychedelic, then it can go there, and and you know, hopefully people people enjoy it and and are not offended. Or <laughs> <laughs>
some reason, if you just play instruments and you don't add any weird effects, and you know, you just play a song, people call that throwback. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's just There's a song no with drum three machines, chords. So. Yeah, and we're just playing it. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's true. Were you inspired by the climate of the time in writing some of these songs? I mean, you talk about the pay gap, the disparity between men and women. Uh, you know, there's an anthem for the hashtag Me Too moment. Um, and, and you're talking about a lot of uh, uh, very timely issues. And, and I've read interviews where you said, you know, at the risk of offending people. Let's not forget what happened to the Dix Dixie Checks when they dared to have an opinion. My God. Well, luckily, nobody uh, buys records anymore, so they don't, can't burn them. <laughs> Um, and I, you know, I've, a lot of people bring up the Dixie Chicks to me, and, and uh, you know, they, I think they were in a very different arena. You know, they were on a, a major label, I'm sure, and they were having lots of radio play. Mm -hmm. So, I've definitely offended some people, and I, um, I, I would have put out the same record no, no matter um, who was in was in office. We wrote our song "All American Made" um, during the Obama administration. And um, it definitely took on new weights and new meaning um, after the election. But um, even Pay Gap, you know, I think that um, I think that song wouldn't wouldn't feel as as heavy or as um, as much of an anthem as it as it does now that you know all these issues have, have come to light. It's not that I'm asking for more than I'm owed, and I don't think I'm better than you. Say that we live in the land of the free Sometimes that bell don't ring true It's been that way Even on my first record, there was a song called This Town Gets Around, which I always say was uh, Me Too before Me Too was Me Too. made Midwest Farmer's Daughter, shopped it around, nobody wanted it, Jack White eventually put it out and it became a huge hit, it was a top 10 uh, record on the country charts I believe without a single, which was unprecedented at, at, at the time. Um, and, and I just have to interject, you pawned your wedding ring to pay for those sessions? Is that true? We did. Oh my God. That's well, commitment. Were you able to buy it back? Ever? Even before that, I, I mean, I remember the morning that Jeremy walked into the kitchen and he was like, I'm selling the car. <laughs> we need money. I'm selling the car. And uh, he was working at a sandwich shop and uh, I was selling vintage clothes right off my back. <laughs> yeah, you and, want the uh, shirt. Yeah. He went down to CarMax on Gallatin Road in East Nashville and... Uh, it's a good plug there. He saw <laughs> CarMax. Get your money today. <laughs> yeah. It had to I don't, that's not their slogan, but hit me up, CarMax. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it was. If without him, it, it never would have happened because he had more faith in me than I did in myself. Well.
kind of a thing in East Nashville, right? I mean, uh, your band was was around. I mean, and, we were doing all right. Yeah. yeah, I think that it was always like one little thing would keep us holding on, like one write-up or like. I remember Kenny Vaughn seeing me in the five spot, and I was having a terrible week and feeling really depressed, thinking about pawning all my instruments and moving to I don't know Tangiers or something. And uh, you know, Kenny Vaughn was like, "You've got a good thing." Keep going for it. You've got it. And that gave me another six months at least. Just mm-hmm. one little compliment. <laughs> so 12... And you do have the wedding ring back now. We did. We went and okay, got it back. Right. <laughs> they didn't give me much for it because it's got a big crack in it and it's missing a couple diamonds. <laughs> Listening to Sound Opinions, I'm Jim DeRogatis, he's Greg Cott. We are at the Goose Island Barrel House with Margot Price. You moved to Nashville when you're 20 with the aspirations, obviously, of, you know, here's a music town, I'm going to try to crack it. And, uh, and you wrote that song, This Town Gets Around which is one of the nastiest songs I've ever heard about any, and you're in the middle of Nashville. In this town, everybody's trying to get a piece of everybody else. It gets hard to tell a real friend from a fake one. So many promises, favors, and lies. Most of the city was a good disguise. Even I, too, have been only well one. Now, Nashville has this rep. It's the coolest thing, and it's also the meanest thing. I mean, one of our comrades from Chicago, Robbie Folks, wrote a great Nashville song, which was F This Town. My friend Jimmy said Nashville had money growing right on the trees. So I thought I'd go pick some, and that don't mean musically. Like yeah, I heard about 20 that years ago. Yeah, yeah, and it yeah. seems like it's the same dynamic. So what yeah. is just that get, dynamic? Just get Steve Earle Pe- rolling on the <laughs> subject of Nashville. People keep coming there, though. And it seems like there's some really cool things happening. So what is it about Nashville that has this sort of dark, evil underbelly that people don't seem to talk about as much as the, the cool stuff? What was the experience like for you? Yeah, I mean, I'll probably be buried there, if I'm honest. I, I do love it. But, you know, I think the, the level of... Uh, talent there is just through the roof and I mean not even you know the level of talent that we see on TV and here on the radio it's it's the people who are playing like the dive bars and and the honky tonks and you know I I found my whole band there and and they're all just such great pickers and so I you know I think that that is what is really appealing but there are these um, these kind of like unwritten rules and these Secret societies. This, uh, <laughs> wow! That, you know, you'd, <laughs> the Illuminati you'd in Nashville, huh? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, for for saying things or or for being different. Um, I don't know. I think it, that there's a lot of people in the mainstream that are being turned on their heads right now and really grasping for um, authenticity. But I, that being said, I think it's only a matter of time before the Americana outlaw bubble bursts. That's Margot Price. Margot recently joined us for a live performance and conversation at the Goose Island Barrel House in Chicago. And after a short break, we're going to hear more from Margot Price. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Well, I've been traveling so long. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week we're joined by Nashville singer-songwriter Margot Price at the Goose Island Barrel House. We continued our conversation with Margot by asking about her audition for the label. Yeah, actually, I, I had a meeting with them, and it got canceled, and I was heartbroken. And then I had another meeting with them, and I showed up, and they were like, oh, we're just, we're so swamped today. And I was like, I'm outside the door, please. Just, I can't wait any longer. We did, the album had been recorded for like nearly, I mean, half a year or a year at that point. And everybody had turned it down. And everybody had turned it down. I thought like, this is my last ditch effort. And uh, he was like, okay, well, you're here. Come on in. And had a cup of coffee and talked to him. And um, it was in June and, and Bonnaroo was going on. So they had their... Um, they let people come in and do like a direct to acetate, like make your own record and do recording. And they're like, why don't you come back and just, you know, sing a song and we'll put it on a record. And I, it was early morning and I don't like singing early morning. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I said, I don't have my guitar, but they handed me a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and so... I walked back in there and uh, sang this song that uh, Jeremy and I had just wrote after going on this terrible tour of Florida, playing to the most empty, depressing rooms you've ever seen in your whole life. Wow, this is a real low point. <laughs> Questioning everything. And so this song was called Desperate and Depressed. <laughs> and uh, got up there and, and sang it. And there's yeah. some double-sided glass apparently and so i found out later that jack was watching and listening through the <laughs> through the glass wall really? he's got this thing going on for people who don't know when he's at home especially what was that stupid movie about like the devil uh, robert de niro's the devil and it's in louisiana you know and he's got like long fingernails and a pinky ring and, yeah that's what jack reminds me of i think it's all <laughs> show i mean he's just a kid from detroit right who yeah. used to be in goober and the peas right you <laughs> yeah. know and and, and he, but, but he likes to play that so hiding behind the two-way mirror, I could... I... Yeah, I didn't find out until way later that he was back there, but I don't know. I mean, I'd sent them the album, and they loved it, but I think they just wanted to, like, see if I could sing without auto-tune or something. I don't know. Wow. <laughs> That's a little bit of pressure. I just, yeah, I mean, here, I'm glad I... Here, play something. <laughs> Can you give us, like, like, a verse of that song? Yeah, sure. It says a word that might not be good for radio, so you can beep it out later. I'm pissed off at the number of people that I meet Who go to shake my hand with a viper up their sleeve They freeze me out in the winter, burn me up all summer Trying to take my money when I'm desperate and depressed Ain't it a mess? Well, I played for free and paid for the miles on my track Got no sleep in the motel Cause the worry keeps me up It almost drives me crazy Thinking about my baby And how he's gonna love me If I'm desperate and depressed Can't get no
I'm stuck here making someone else's dime. Thank you for indulging us a, 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 an impromptu version of Desperate and Depressed, yeah, a song anytime. that got Margot <laughs> Price signed to Third Man Records. Um, that's great. Here, you're, you're a jerk. Sign me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had this. The only thing we had going for us back in those days was we got a write-up in uh, Rolling Stone, just online. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't even in print. And then we had a, we had a booking agency. And I mean, bless their heart, they really wanted to help us, but we just didn't have any following and they didn't really have that many connections. So they were sending us out on these tours where we were just losing money and sleeping on um, couches covered in cat hair. And uh, yeah, so that, that song was to them. That it ends with a 10% of nothing ain't a dime. So they were getting 10%. I'm like, well, it's fine, you can have $5. <laughs> All American Made has a Willie Nelson uh, duet on it, um, which is a terrific song. There's a bunch of terrific songs on it, but uh, learning, uh, learning to Lose. Um, so how did that work out that you got one of your heroes? Um, Jeremy and I wrote the song, and we were listening to a lot of Willie Nelson records at the time. And when we finished writing it, we were like, wouldn't it be so cool if... if we could get Willie to do that as a duet. But at the time that we wrote it, we had never met him. And then months later, we were doing all these tours with him. We were on the Outlaw Music Festival. We did Farm Aid. We did his Fourth of July picnic. And got to go hang out on the bus with him. <laughs> and um, it, he's just, he's so down to earth and he's so nice. You, you can't even believe that he's rich and famous. Mm -hmm. He he came into the studio, and they had a, a little um, a little stool set up with a little ashtray and a joint in there, <laughs> and Trigger was sitting there in all of his glory, and um, he was just so calm and relaxed. And they told us now, you know, if he if he doesn't like the song, he's going to do it once, and that's it. We just we can't ask him to do it again. He's just going to do it however many times he wants and you'll just have to be happy with what you got. So we were ready for, you know, they were like, he usually only does like two takes at the most. But I think he did like four, four or five. And he was just so, he was so into it. And he told us, you know, several times what a great song it was. And mm. um, it was really hard to pick which lead. I mean, he did so many amazing leads. We're like, how do we pick which trigger solo we want? you tell me how long must I pay all these dues? Won't you tell me it's when I learn to you said it, oh 
question we kept asking is what Willie Nelson song are we ripping off what is this you know, this is this is the song <laughs> so we go through faces of stages we go through shotgun Willie and like no it's not that one like I don't know what it is so uh when he got done tracking we went out in the in the room kind of hung out for a minute and he shook our hand and said what a great song I said well we're just you know trying to rip rip you off the best we can and he said I didn't write that song and I was a good confidence like you know mm. like, it you didn't rip me off you know yeah. So cool. cool. Yeah. Of course, you might have, and he just forgot. <laughs> Maybe it's so. Possible. Yeah. yeah. You know, a little bit of fog there, but we'll, we'll wait for the lawsuit. Yeah. <laughs> Wonderful songs. I think the the core of the of what uh, Margot Price and, and Jeremy Ivy and uh, and Luke Schneider have been able to accomplish is the songwriting. Uh, Jeremy and and Margot as a team on uh, many of these songs. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about you come from a songwriting tradition in a way, Margot, in your family. Your uncle was a, a guy who had a similar story to you in that he wasn't an in overnight success, but ended up writing songs for a lot of important country artists. Uh, yeah. Was that story inspirational to you? And did he ever say to you, Margot, don't do it. You're crazy if you do this. <laughs> oh, he, gave me, he gave me some tough love advice, that's for sure. Um, yeah, my, my uncle Bobby Fisher, he's still living in Nashville. He's in his 80s now. He's um, still writing songs. And he, yeah, he had a normal life, and I guess they were living in, in Iowa. And he told his wife that, um, you know, he wanted to move to Nashville and write songs. And um, she was a nurse, and she said, oh, okay, well, let's do it. And they packed up the family, and moved to Nashville, and he ended up writing songs for George Jones and Tanya Tucker and Charlie Pride and uh, Reba McIntyre. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. I don't know how to tell her she don't love me Yeah, I think when I when I first moved to Nashville, my mom thought like that he would just hook it up, like oh, he'll, he's got the key to the door, like it's cool, I'll let you in. So um, I went to his house and I played him a couple of songs that I wrote, and I got done, and he just kind of sat there in silence for a while, and it made me very nervous. And and then he told me um, to basically to go back to my apartment and get rid of my computer and my TV, my radio, and just keep writing songs because those weren't good enough. Wow. <laughs> and I mean, he was right. And, yeah. and I knew that. I'd been going out to all these like open mic writer nights and like just tried to study like what made a song good and, you know, like having a little bit of humor and, and having a theme. And yeah, I'm really thankful that he did that. What's he said recently? Oh, he's, I mean, he's so supportive. I mean, yeah, he... He couldn't be more proud. They come out to my shows and wow. and whatnot. And we went over and co-wrote with him a couple of times. And he has this like long list. It's just pages and pages of like song titles and like things that people say in everyday conversation. That he's like, pick out a title. Let's write a song. <laughs> and then he gets out his boombox with a cassette tape and hits record. You know, we're there with our iPhones. Like, let's make the demo. And then we got done writing the song, and he pulled out a contract. And, uh, <laughs> and we, 
Jeremy, you sign here, and we'll sign, and you sign here, and then we all, then we know who gets credit on the song. That's old school Nashville. <laughs> old school. Wow. Blood is not... They didn't even wait till the body's uh, cold, right? You know, it's like... <laughs> We could keep you guys all day, but but you've gotten a long road ahead of you. Uh, you're going to play one more song for us, right? Sure. Is this going to be a new one or something from the album? What what are you going to do, Margo? I think we're going to end with uh, with All American Made here. The title track. Yeah, the title. Wonderful track. song. It ain't the single, but it's my favorite. What's a single in this streaming <laughs> digital age? They're all singles. <laughs> if you play them separately, they are. Woke up from a movie I immediately forgot Got a heartache on the bottom And a headache on the top The part of me that hurts the worst Is the one I just can't spot And it's all
Raised on sports and Jesus and all the usual suspects. Oh, so tell me, Tom Petty, what do you think will happen next? What a great song for our times. All-American Made from uh, Margot Price with Jeremy Ivey and Luke Schneider. Uh, Margot, can't thank you enough for coming in. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you all. That wraps up our conversation with singer and songwriter Margot Price. We've got videos of her performance, and you can find those at soundopinions.org. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, we're going to be reviewing some new albums by Nico Case, Parquet Courts, and we're going to tell you what the heck is Kanye West up to now. We're also working on our Best Albums of 2018 So Far list, and we want to hear from you. Call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message with your favorite album of the year so far and why. Special thanks this week to Adam Yaffe and Goose Island for the Margot Price performance. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, Iona Contreras, and this week we welcome our newest staff member, Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. This is Betty from Sarasota, originally from Montreal. I was just thrilled with your dissection of the Blue Album by Joni Mitchell. I was a singer, a professional singer my whole life, and she is my all-time hero. I think she's really the most important figure in the last 50 years as far as women artists for her prolific songwriting, her gorgeous singing, 
and her great artistry. So I love Joni Mitchell. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Hey, Sound Opinions. This is Justice from Nashville, Tennessee. I am 25 years old, and I just listened to your Joni Mitchell dissection. I love A Case of You. Just before our love got lost, you said, I am as constant as a northern star, and I said, And I grew up listening to this album with my mom and my dad, and I can just remember after my mom and dad split, and my mom would just sing her heart out about A Case of You. And it felt like so much back then, and then now to be older and just, to have felt the same way about someone else and to have seen her pain and hard Joni Mitchell goes just saying that yes of course I can out drink anyone and feel as hard as anyone else can is just so emotional and raw and good yeah and I appreciate you guys I drink a case of you darling and I would still be on my feet Hi guys, this is Wendy calling from Clearwater, Florida. I just listened to the Joni Mitchell episode and absolutely loved it. You hit the nail on the head in so many ways. I particularly liked your comment on a case of you when you were saying about talking about all of the different opinions on who the song was about. Was it about her love affair with Leonard Cohen or was it about still about Graham Nash and he said really who cares and and that's true it's uh there's a truth to her songs that transcends whoever it was she was singing about at the time love your show bye this is April from Clinton New York I was thrilled to find your new episode was a dissection of Joni Mitchell's classic album Blue I was especially interested in the portion where Lindsay Zolatz addressed the idea of Joni Mitchell's legacy and talked about the passing on of the music from mother to daughter and about Joni's influence on young women. So as a huge Joni Mitchell fan myself and mother of a boy, I like to think that there was some formative influence seeping in from Joni's songs, which comprised a good portion of my son's evening lullabies. And then I had little doubt that they were, in fact, seeping in when one day, while I was settling him into his car seat, he started singing You Turn Me On on the radio and sang it right through to the end. I think he was about five at the time. Oh, honey, you turn me on I'm the radio I'm the country station I'm a little bit corny I'm a wild Broadcasting and then he turns 28 this year, and I'm so pleased to have brought Song and Joni Mitchell into his life. And I'd like to think that it contributed to the generous and thoughtful man who joined me last year on January 21st in the Women's March in Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for your show, and especially for this great episode. Bye. No more messages. 
To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.